You're listening to the ILS Podcast. Now here's your host, Richard Munoz. Hello and welcome to the ILS Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the International Law Section of the State Bar of Texas, where our mission is to provide you a short and topical podcast that makes international law relevant no matter your area of practice or business. The United Nations Refugee Agency estimates that there are 82.4 million people worldwide that are displaced due to persecution, violence, human rights violations, or other events. This includes an estimated 4.5 million Ukrainian refugees fleeing the Russian invasion. Today, our topic will focus on the refugee and asylum process in the United States. And it is my pleasure to have Robert Armstrong of Armstrong Legal, Robert is an experienced immigration attorney in Dallas that represents clients in immigration court and a whole host of immigration services, including asylum, applying for permanent residence or citizenship. He also provides assistance with TPS, special immigrant juvenile status, DACA, U visas, and the Violence Against Women's Act. Robert, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me here. Well, let's level set for a second and let's just talk about what is a refugee and what is the asylum process? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, and um, a refugee, first of all, the statutory framework for it is in the INA. So INA section 101A42, um, it's got a big, thick, chunky paragraph, but uh, you strip, strip away the, the basics, it's basically, um, you know, anyone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country and not um, willing to avail themselves of the protection of their country because of persecution or well-founded fear of persecution um, on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Um, and that's the basic framework for a refugee. And and so a refugee, so someone who meets that definition, or at least in, they believe they meet that definition, um, and they want to apply for asylum. For those of us who don't practice in the immigration uh, field, what does asylum mean, and what is that? How is that different than say your normal processing to become a citizen, for example? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I think one thing that uh, gets kind of muddied. Um, you know, just because it's it's a little hard to distinguish the two, but there's a difference between an asylee, someone applying for asylum, and a refugee, someone applying for, uh, you know, refugee status. Um, you have to be outside of the country to put, uh, to apply for uh, refugee status. Once you're in the country, or if you're presenting yourself at the border, what you're applying for is asylum. Um, the requirements are the same. The requirements for asylum are, are, are the same, unwilling um, to return to their country, unwilling to avail themselves of, the gun, of, of uh, protection of their government, um, and persecution based on race, religion, nationality, opinion, uh, political opinion, or being part of a particular social group. Same framework. So um, that's the that's the that's who and where you, or how you apply based on where you are, whether in the country or not. Um, and so for people applying for asylum, there's two ways to do that. You can either apply affirmatively, which means you're, you're here in the US uh, with legal status, you're not in any removal proceedings, and then you submit an application to USCIS and they adjudicate that, uh, that asylum application or you apply defensively, which means you're already in removal proceedings and you're, you're asking an immigration judge to allow you to stay in the country um, because they're gonna grant you asylum. So in, let, let me talk about those two different uh, topics for the ones who would present their status or ask their status to be adjudicated by 
uh, USCIS, the ones who are doing it affirmatively. Um, that is, the, but that's a situation, and just to make sure I'm clear, where someone is is in the country uh, with authorization and is not in any kind of proceeding. Correct. Yeah. You know, uh, not necessarily always here with authorization, right? Like if someone is is here in the U.S. Um, and they're not in removal proceedings. So sometimes people are here without any kind of legal status, but haven't been put in removal proceedings. They would also initiate their process through USCIS. Is there a difference in the speed between an affirmative and def and defensive? Is there is there adjudication faster one way or the other? Well, Richard, first of all, I object to you using the word speed. Um, <laughs> there's nothing fast about this process at all. Um, you know, back in the before times, uh, a few years ago. Um, asylum processes, you know, you, you might reasonably expect the, there to be some kind of adjudication within two years. Um, right now, I mean, we're seeing five, six, seven years, and that, that's whether it's in, um, you know, a defensive or, or an affirmative asylum um, application. So um, there, is, there is a tremendous backlog, as you can imagine, um, both in USCIS and with immigration court. So, uh, yeah, the, the, and, and there's also a lot of unpredictability because of the constant shifts in, in policy, obviously the shift in administration, um, the shift in, in uh, you know, the amount of people coming in and where they're coming from. So um, anybody applying for these statuses has to, has to be ready for some, some a, you know, pretty long period of uncertainty. So what happens to someone, who, whether they're doing it defensively or affirmatively, and they're in this five to six year window are they still in the country are they in detention how do, what happens what's the what happens to these people so they're in limbo i mean uh, you know for for uh, their asylum you know for them to get asylum they have to stay in the country right they leave aside if they leave the country um you know they're they're abandoning their asylum application because it's, it's by definition they're physically here right so Again, this just depends on the, the climate, the political climate that they're in. But the way that the, the way that the process is set up, it, it allows for someone to have a work permit, work authorization during the time that their application is pending. And so 180 days after they submit an application, they can apply for a work permit. They're issued a social security number and they're able to work you know, legally during that period. And then you know, if they win their case, you know, they, they, they're on the path to become a legal permanent resident. If they lose the case, case is, is, uh, there's a final adjudication, negative adjudication on their case, they, they lose the, the work permit. And then they're just kind of, you know, again, in limbo. So, so let me ask you that on the flip side, or I guess the second part, if you're a refugee, let's say you're, um, how does, is that, does that process differ at that point? It, it very much so. Um, the, the refugee setup, the re refugee program is set up for people to apply from within their country. Right. Um, and so they are actually working with the UNHCR as opposed to, you know, directly with you know, the Department of State or USCIS. Um, and there's like international treaties that govern how people apply for refugee status and how they're processed. Um, it is a lot less clear the path to you know, applying for refugee status and what that timeline looks like, it's a lot muddier. You had mentioned that um, the process right now is slow. What is the current state of the asylum system right now? I, it is, it's tremendously backlogged. Um, I, I don't have the specific numbers for USCIS off the top of my head, but I, I, I have the numbers. Uh, there are approximately 80,000 um, cases backlog pending before the Dallas Immigration Court. That's not even the entire, you know, that's just Dallas Immigration Court. Wow. And a large 
you know, percentage of those, I, I believe it's around 50 or 60% of those are asylum applications. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the backlog is tremendous. I feel like both USCIS and EOIR are, are just now beginning to recover from, you know, the, the pandemic and also uh, efforts from the previous administration to kind of dismantle the system. And so their staffing levels are starting to get back to, to kind of a decent level, um, starting to get more uniform processes and rolling out some of the kind of more modern uh, I'm, I'm laughing as I say modern, uh, you know, modern circa 20, 2005 kind of stuff, right, that, that, uh, that they'd been on working on for a while. Um, and so eventually that I think is going to help them get back to processing cases within a year or two. With the caveat, I'm not sure how they're going to get through the backlog. I, I, you know, I think the ICE, uh, DHS is actually um, has, has a memo that's come out, uh, the Doyle memo, that's supposed to take effect the 25th of April, which will uh, allow, well, not allow, which will, this is going to instruct ICE to move to uh, close a, a, a really a large swath of cases that are on the current backlog, um, as long as they're not considered a priority. And I think you're going to see a lot of asylum cases are going to fall within that. So um, and those are kind of some of the things that are coming down the pipeline. It's it's everything. I just feel like it's still in disarray and it's going to be that way for a while. And, you know, on USCIS's side, you know, they're still trying to staff up and, and they're, they're, they're experiencing what I, I feel like they're experiencing a little bit of mission creep as well, because um, if, if uh, I don't know if you've heard of the news, but they've actually kind of moved um, a lot of people in USCIS to centers in the border where they're going to be adjudicating asylum applicants closer to the border, right? And so there's these new centers, new policies, but they're going to be using existing staff. So those resources, um, which are going to be redirected to the border, aren't going to be focused on processing cases that are already pending. Okay. USCIS uh, affirmative, the affirmative asylum applications and, and you know, any cases that are being adjudicated by, by uh, USCIS are going to see delays because they're directing, the, the, the president has directed USCIS to help process those people at the border in an attempt to, to, to prevent, uh, you know, to kind of filter out some cases uh, that might otherwise immediately get put into the into the removal process. So on March 24th, I understand that that, that they issued a USCIS issued a fact sheet about the DHS efforts to assist Ukrainian nationals um, and specific gotcha. specific to that. And so um, what uh, can you can you give us a little uh, overview of what that was? Sure, just kind of a mile high overview. A lot of the things that are announced here aren't really new, right? It's just kind of a summary of, of what's going on. And there's not a lot of very uh, forceful affirmative action that they're taking, right? So uh, the first item they talk about a legal pathway to uh, for eligible Ukrainians. Um, it's not very clear you know, what, what that means, you know, they've set aside a hundred, they're welcoming up to a hundred thousand Ukrainians. So I, I don't know if that means that they're exempting them from, from, you know, from a cap or, or what, um, you know, so it's kind of vague exactly what that means, uh, which is something that I think has, has played very well in the news, but we're still kind of waiting to see what that means. Temporary protected status which is it's TPS. That's something that they're that they've they have on the fact sheet, but that's something that they announced. Um, you, you know, they, they announced a, a month ago, right? That people from Ukraine that are that are here uh, that were here prior to March 1, 2022, can apply for temporary protected status to 
you know, allow them to stay in the U.S., apply for work permits and not have to, uh, you know, be concerned about being put in removal proceedings. Let, let me ask you real quick. You had mentioned um, a cap. Um, can you just kind of, uh, my understanding is that on certain countries, I don't know if it's all countries, they have a cap of how many people from this particular country USCIS will let in, I guess if that's the right word, or admit legally. Is that is is that how a cap, the caps are talk, you were talking about? Yeah, so with, you know, when we talk about caps, we're talking about people that are, um, they, what they call preference categories, and both on the family side and on the, the employment side, you know, they're kind of broken up into, uh, you know, there's, there's X amount of visas available for, you know, this group every year, and then there are certain countries that because they, they have historically had a really high, uh, you know, high amount of, of immigration, have their own cap, their own kind of limit. So that would be India, China, and Mexico. And, and so I mentioned that only because I'm trying to figure out where, where the numerosity comes into play, right? Um, there is no statutory cap for asylees or refugees, you know, um, that's specifically set in place. So, so I'm, I'm not sure where that comes into play. I do know that um, the, uh, the government has the ability to assign, set aside um, a certain amount of visas that are in one category for people from another group. And so, for instance, unaccompanied minors that apply for special immigrant juvenile status apply for visas that are actually pulled from the fourth employment category. So, so we're hearing 100,000, but we're not exactly sure what that means. Exactly. And, and the second thing was temporary protected status. This is TPS, I think, as it's known. It, the, again, the person has to already be in the United States. Is, is that how that works? That is correct. But can a person apply for both asylum and TPS or do they go hand in hand? Yeah, there's 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 nothing that prevents them from applying for both. I think it's more of a strategic question because TPS is fairly easy to get. All you have to do is prove that you were here, prove that you're a national of that country, and you're going to get TPS. Asylum is is fairly difficult to get. Um, you know, depending on where you're at, you know, and, and whether or not your case is defensive, defensive or uh, affirmative. You know, for instance, in immigration court here in Dallas, some 95, 96% of cases are denied, right? So low likelihood of success. However, if you're granted asylum, you're on a path to get legal permanent resident status and then to become a citizen. TPS is, does not provide that at all. There is no direct path from, you know, temporary protected status to legal permanent resident to citizenship. And so you know, for, for some people, they, they may want to apply for both. And I guess the, the other question I was like, so it, it would guess it'd be strategic. So for example, and I'm just, again, another hypothetical, you're a Ukrainian national, you're graduating college in a month, you know, the, the war or the Russia's still there invading, the uh, hostilities are still in effect. That might be an option for you uh, once your college visa expires. Is, is that, have I muddled this up or is that an option? Is that something that could happen? Um, Richard, uh, there is no such thing as muddling immigration law. It is, it, it comes muddled. It's pre-muddled. Um, you, you know, so, so once again, you know, it's, it's a similar scenario, right? You've got the F, someone would be in a student, you know, F1 status. They've got the status is, is, you know, is about to expire. And, and from that point, they've got a couple of different options, right? Uh, assuming that they were studying here prior to, uh, March 1st, um, probably the best thing to do would be to try to apply for TPS. If nothing else, that buys that person time, right? If they decide that they do want to apply for asylum, um, they, they can. And it, it, asylum has um, a one-year limit. You're supposed to apply for asylum 
you know, within a year of having arrived to the U.S. But there's an exception for changed circumstances, and I, I think that I, I I think the argument that the circumstances have changed in Ukraine is is pretty uh, self-evident, right? And so that's that's something that uh, you know someone in that status could could consider. So, and again, I, I I hate to do these hypotheticals with you, Robert, but I just you just put something in my mind. Let's assume um things go back to pre-february russia withdrawals you know there's some peace accord or what have you and now you have a ukrainian who's applying for asylum does that affect their asylum petition in other words does it say well sorry game's changed it's moot is there, is there something like that that happens it could it, it it really just depends on how the u.s uh decides to interpret the you know the, the situation on the ground over there. The the rule, what, what comes to mind here specifically is that for asylum, there's an element where you have to show that your government uh, was persecuting, what was either part, uh, you know, part and party to your persecution, or they knew about it and couldn't or wouldn't protect you, right? And so in a scenario where, where the, you know, quote unquote persecution, the attack of the country is stopped, um, or, you know, the government itself isn't at fault, or, you know, there's not a very clear, succinct meeting of the elements, it would be left up to the interpretation of, of either the person that's adjudicating the asylum application, or, you know, if the administration or, or leadership um, in either USCIS or EOIR decides, hey, cases uh, with this particular fact pattern are to be decided this way, then that's how they're going to go. And I also noticed on the uh, on the memo they were saying there's going to be some expedited processing for Ukrainian applications. Is that do they also expedite processing um, for other I guess areas of conflict, say other places that that are experience active hostilities? Is that kind of does that fast track it or does that make it faster or it just depends? It it depends. I, I think you know one of the things that you that the kids are are kind of uh, up in arms about is that um, it does seem that the government is putting forth an effort to expedite, um, you know, some kind of assistance for people from Ukraine um, in a way that was not done for Syrians um, and, and in a way that was, you know, not successfully done for people from, from Afghanistan. So, you know, there, there, is, there is an intent, there is an intent to try to do that for them, but uh, whether or not the capacity exists, we, we'll, we'll all find out. For again, for those of us who don't practice in immigration, what is the one or two things you want us to take away from the recent events, the things that are happening with refugees and asylees? What can you, what kind of nugget can you give us to go to, to take away from this? Yeah, I, I think the big takeaway here is that our system and 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 our our immigration system uh, is not constructed in a way to respond to humanitarian crisis in in in, in any kind of fast or effective way. And uh, immigration reform is sorely needed. This is this is a, a perfect example, right? You know, where you have the majority of the of the country is is uh, in support of providing assistance to people from Ukraine, and you know, it's not coming. It's not coming in a substantive way. So I think looking at kind of the knee jerk emotional response that we have to want to step in and, and help the Ukrainian people, the the statutory support isn't there for it. Well, Robert, I really appreciate you being on the on the program. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, how would they get a hold of Robert Armstrong? Yeah, I mean, they, they can give us a call at 469-844-0020. Um, they can look us up online, legalarmstrong.com. Um, I'm on uh, 
you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Legal Armstrong. Um, I'm on the interwebs. <laughs> Very good. Well, Robert, thank you for, for uh, taking a muddled situation and, and unmuddling it as best as you could. And I really appreciate you being on the program. Richard, thanks for having me. The views presented by the host and the guests on the ILS podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the International Law Section or the State Bar of Texas. This podcast is not intended as legal advice and is only for educational purposes. This has been the ILS podcast, Music, Wonder, Take Two by Admiral Bob, copyright 2020, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, available at http colon backslash backslash dig.ccmixter.org backslash files backslash Admiral Bob 77 backslash 62202 FT colon SACJO 22.